Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey, everybody. I'm so glad you're here. It's always a delight for me, as you guys know, to present people who I think bring perspectives and issues to us that we're all dealing with in some ways in our lives, but often don't get a chance to learn about, talk about, and certainly hear from experts. So let me introduce my next expert. Dr. Larry Hedges is a psychologist, a psychoanalyst in private practice in Orange County, California, specializing in the training of psychotherapists and psychoanalysts. Hey, guys, that means he teaches people like me. He is director of the Listening Perspective Center and the founding director of the Newport Psychoanalytic Institute in Tustin, California, where he is a supervising and training psychoanalyst. He has been awarded honorary membership in the American Psychoanalytic Association. Dr. Hedges is also author of numerous papers and books, including Cross-Cultural Encounters, Bridging Worlds of Difference, Listening Perspectives in Psychotherapy, and this book that we're about to talk about today, which I think is extremely important, The Call of Darkness. Welcome, Dr. Hedges. Thank you. It's really exciting for me to have you here because I don't, although the topic is not exciting, because what we're going to talk about and what the call of darkness is about, folks, is really about suicide. And I can tell you, sadly, in my practice, I've certainly lost clients due to their despair of ever healing. I've lost partners due to their despair that their relationships and their family life would ever work out. I've lost people in my own life that I thought would be able to make it and just couldn't. And for those of us who are here on the planet who get through the day and day in and day out challenges of just being alive, somehow we manage to bounce back and say, we're going to see it through another day. But one of Dr. Hedge's specialties, and the reason I asked him to join us today, is about suicide. Where does it come from? Is it a lifelong process or is it just related to situations? Does therapy help with with suicide? Does, Does family help with suicide? How would I know if somebody was really serious and really wanting to harm themselves versus they're just in so much pain they don't feel like living? These are some of the questions I want to ask. And if you're not aware, you know, we're in a time in our culture where suicide is quite high, higher than it's been in a very long time, especially among um, middle-aged adults. And so I think this is an extremely important time to bring Dr. Hedges on. Dr. Hedges, welcome. Thank you very much. So what made you want to write about and talk about suicide in particular? How did you think you could be helpful in that way? Interesting question, uh, Rob. Uh, Oddly enough, it was a mandate from the Obama White House once uh, it was recognized that we have a national epidemic, and now we have a global epidemic in suicide. 
And uh, the mandate came out that all health and mental health and education workers in the United States must take suicide prevention training. And that mandate is now leaking down. And so in California, we now have a mandate in the Board of Psychology and the Board of Behavioral Sciences. So all therapists, social tra- workers, marriage and family, all, all of us, all therapists are required to take a six hour course in suicide prevention. So while I had um, uh, worked a number of different suicide uh, instances with people, people I was supervising, people in my own practice, I had never done any systematic study of it, and I thought, well, I'd love to do continuing education with therapists, so I'm going to beef up. And I got started, and I got through more than 50 books and several hundred papers on suicide. And so my head is filled with lots of different ideas. but And a lot of dark thoughts. And a lot of dark thoughts, <laughs> a lot of dark thoughts. But there's also a, a, a gilded edge uh, that we'll look at as well. So, so let me ask you this, and I'm going to say this for the whole audience, because I think I would not mostly put people on the spot, but I'm going to put Dr. Hedges on the spot. How old are you, Dr. Hedges? 78. So I want you to understand, every one of you who's listening, that life continually offers us opportunities to grow. And one of the reasons I am so joyous in the presence of this particular therapist is because he is still writing, he is still teaching, he is still learning and growing at 78 and doesn't see that in any way a hindrance to the advancement of our field or his professional life. And I say that to you not because of any reason, except that it's so easy to say, well, retirement, well, letting go. And I think people like Dr. Hedges see these years as a fulfillment of everything he's learned to be able to pass it on rather than a time to duck out. And so I really admire that. I just want to tell you that personally. I appreciate that. Uh, and, and the way you're saying it is true. I've watched uh, age mates of mine for the last 20 or 30 years sort of throw in the towel needlessly. And so it seems like the important thing to do is just, as you said, to realize, wait a minute, it doesn't matter how old we are. There, uh, there's opportunities to grow, to exchange, to expand. And you picked a topic that well, is very timely, but very, you know, you didn't choose joy, love, spirituality, and happiness. You chose suicide. So, and I, I really, and this is a very important topic for us. So, Dr. Hedges, as you started looking at all these papers, all these books, all this history in the field, yes. I would imagine a few things stuck out at you right at the beginning about looking at all of suicidality. Are there any things that maybe struck you that you weren't aware of or things that you pulled together reading all this that thought, well, that's interesting, just as a general idea before we get into deeper things? The first one that jumped off the page at me as I got in it is that nobody knows why people kill themselves. Well, wait a minute. Okay, so why are you on my show? (laughs) No, okay, we are going to talk about all around this, but tell us more about what does that mean, nobody knows why? Because suicide has been studied for several hundred years in Europe and the America, but since 1960, uh, it's been studied scientifically uh, very carefully with the result that our ability to predict and treat suicide is less than chance. Meaning with all the scientific study that's done on we still don't know what suicide is about. And you're saying that the treatment of suicide with people who are pretty dedicated may only lead to a better than average chance that we can pull them through it. And we're not even sure how or why. Uh, That's close. Mm -hmm. I want to say it differently. That the next idea that jumped off the page for me was that the serious suicidologists around the world today date the origin of serious suicidality back to the first two years of life. Okay, so you said two things that I don't understand. First of all, and, I, and then you guys know I will clarify so we can move forward. There are people who are suicidologists? 
That's actually a thing? Oh, yes. Okay, what is suicide? I'm, I mean, I'm an addictionologist, so, yes, and I'm a sexologist, so I kind of get it, but I had never heard that. These what? are people who study suicide, and they're all around the world. Wow. The first uh, serious interdisciplinary group met in Eschy, Switzerland in 2002. Wow. And there was already a major body of literature at that point in time. Uh -huh. And um, the Eschy guidelines that are now on their um, website talk about whatever is involved in treating suicide, it requires a relationship with the therapist. It requires a, a commitment of the therapist and the suicidal person. Okay, so well, let me back up for a second, because right. you said two things. One, okay. you said there's a something called a suicidologist. Yes. I didn't know that. Right. Then we learn what that is. But you also said something that was, I thought, rather startling and never occurred to me on any level, because I sort of see in my life, my idea of suicidality is it's kind of situational. So I'll give you an example. There's a whole field of study now with ketamine as an right. antidepressant, and right. there's been quite a lot of success. And one of the particular things they're using ketamine for is compulsive desire to commit suicide. It seems to be very helpful in that area. Yeah. So the way they discovered this in one of their first studies was on a gentleman who had lost his son to drug addiction, mm -hmm. and he had two sons, and then six months later, he lost his other son to drug addiction, mm -hmm. and then he wanted to die. And he was absolutely committed. He, now, he didn't kill himself, but he kept saying, I'm going to, I want to die, I have no reason to live. He went to doctors, he did every kind of therapy. And for whatever reason, the ketamine was helpful to him and shifted him to a, to a place where he felt that he could live. But I'm bringing up that example because that's how I think of suicide. Like terrible things happen to you. Yes. And then you just decide, well, I don't want to live. But what does that have to do with early childhood? Well, uh, let's, let's start from a different angle. Terrible things happen to all of us. <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> and, and we're not all dead. So it's the question. So is that resilience? The resilience to bounce back from difficult things, or is it more than yeah, that? No, there's definitely resilience. But then what we're saying is the people who become seriously suicidal, whether they become uh, instrumental or manipulative in the suicidal thing, or whether they become uh, successful completers of suicide, when I'm going to call them all serious suicide people, they all have stories. My wife left me. Uh, my mother died. Uh, I went bankrupt. I mean, there's... Well, that's why they, the immediate moment, that's the trigger. I can't live trigger. with this anymore. Thank you. That's the trigger. But we've all been through all those experiences. It didn't trigger the rest of us. Well, I mean, people do lose children. People do have marriages and people do find illness in people they love. Yeah, we all have our challenges. And we don't all kill ourselves. Not yet. Okay, not yet. <laughs> right. So what we, what study, serious study has revealed is that the same event can trigger someone who is deeply vulnerable, and it's the deep vulnerability that goes back to the first two years of life. But since we can't say what happened to us in the first couple of years of life in our attachment... And if we don't have witnesses around who saw it... Right. And even there, the witnesses might see it differently than we experienced it. We can't go back there. So if someone is feeling seriously suicidal, we have to try to make sense of it. And so, being storytellers by nature, we end up saying, well, uh, this what is happened? Right. What's this the happened, story? and this happened, and this happened. And so, then that sort of plausibly makes a story. And that's a situational view of suicide, that these situations overwhelmed this person right. who chose not to live. And, and yet, what deep study has uh, indicated is... is that's it's, not not, just, it's not just that. It's not just the situation. The situation is a trigger, but what it's triggering is some deep piece of trauma. Now, I know that you work with uh, drug and sex addiction, and people come in with all sorts of stories. My wife, my boss, my affair. The reasons that they do, the, th the crazy behaviors they do. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And yet, as you work with them, you know full well 
Well, I know that some people go have sex with lots of folks, but then they don't make it a lifestyle. I know some people drink with friends, but they don't become alcoholic. There you have it. And some of it is DNA related. You know, some people will respond to alcohol differently than others, but there's more than the physical. I do know that. And most of my clients talk about trauma, the addict clients who struggle with intimacy and addiction. Right. And by the time you work with them, you begin to realize that, yes, there's triggering traumas, but there are deep You mean like atta- the recent ones, the current But there are also deep attachment issues. And when you say attachment issues, can you explain We're what talking you mean? about the, the uh, relationship that an, an infant, a newborn, uh, in the first two years of life is able to establish with his or her environment, whether mother, father, right. sister, aunt, dog, whatever. And the way in which the, the interactions occur in the first two years of life sets up a lifelong vulnerability to wanting to throw in the towel. So one of the things I think related to this that you and I would probably agree on, I'm not sure, but we think we would, is that our early life experiences really set up uh, set us up for an unconscious, an, an, a, a sense of kind of call and response, how people respond to me, when my needs will be met, when they won't. What happens when I reach out? What happens when I call out? What happens when I'm lonely? And that there's enough of that consistency and nurturing and responsiveness that no matter what the innate challenges a person might have, maybe they're innately going to be a little depressed or anxious, it's going to all be much more stable because they have that early base of kind of knowing that no matter what, on a very early level, that someone will respond to them and make them feel better simply by connecting to them. And what you're saying is that there are some people who don't have that early experience. You know, one of the things I was thinking about was, in a very simple way, the mother who experiences afterbirth depression. Yes. And she's not available to parents. She loves her child, but she's stuck. And then there the child is at eight months or 10 months, and that mom is just not really able to pull herself together to fully engage and interact. That that's the kind of, maybe that's the kind of traumatic loss yes. that might go unseen in day-to-day life, but is really inside the person in a meaningful way. Is that right. kind of what you mean? Yes. You set me up to go to the title of my book, The Call of Darkness. Oh, great. Imagine a baby, first months of life, with you have the postpartum depression, but there could be many different things in the environment that make it such that uh, that the baby can't be responded to in the way and in, in, in the time frame. So I might have an alcoholic parent. It or, can be anything. Or my parents are fighting so much about finances and they're working all the time. And they're just unable to respond to me. But it is the child who's not responded to enough, yes. not adequately, not consistently. In the way that the child wants it. Because every child has a different set of needs and wants to be responded to in certain ways with a certain time frame. You know, I can relate to that just as an adult, I want to say, because I know when I work with my clients, some of them want hugs. Well, forget my clients. I want hugs when I walk in the door. My husband says, I need a little space, a little time out. Now, I know we have similar needs, but how we want them expressed and different for every person. And you're saying that starts at birth. It starts before birth. Wow. We do know that things can and do go wrong in the child's nurturance in utero, as well as in the first three or four months of life. There's all kinds of things. Well, mothers can... Well, toxemia and pregnancy, they drugs. Might, well, or dad has an affair and she goes into a panic and her hormones and her emotional right. self is in... Or the mother being not wanting the baby because it's not the right time in her life. I see. Or wanting an abortion. I mean, there's all kinds of things mm-hmm. that can and do happen to babies. So, Before birth. Before birth and then after birth. 
So to me, the most important focus of uh, early life is the, the the third trimester, and what infant researchers are uh, almost humorously now calling the fourth trimester. Which is the first the year first and three and or four months. Uh-huh. No, the first okay. three or four months. Okay. Because in that first three or four months, the baby needs to be surrounded with immediate need fulfillment, the same as the baby does in utero. So wait, I want to clarify this. So children who are going to be the healthiest are almost getting a womb-like experience yes. in the outside world by yes. constantly feeling like they don't even, they're just responded to because they exist. Yes. Just like they get yes. fed in the womb without yes. having to yes. ask. Yes, yes, yes. And then as they develop, they're more able to articulate, etc. Well, they're able to tolerate momentary uh, frustrations. Right. All right, let's uh, imagine something. We've got a, a, an infant, not very old, in the first uh, month or so, who has needs. And uh, the infant is laying in uh, her crib. And uh, she begins to, she's just had a nap and she wakes up and she starts to rustle around. And usually she's expecting somebody to come and pick her up, but it doesn't happen. And then she cries a little. She cries a little. And before too long, she's screaming and her lungs are uh, filled with uh, air. Then she starts shaking all over and she arches her back. And so she's screaming bloody murder now and still nothing, nothing, nothing until she exhausts herself and falls into darkness. She can't tolerate the pain any longer, the pain of not being responded to. Okay, so hold on a second. I got to say something about this. I remember Dr. Spock. I was too young for it, but I know what the message was. And the message was, let them cry because they will learn to sue themselves if you just leave them alone long enough. Nobody believes that anymore. But boy, that was the message that my parents got and your parents got. So they were completely wrong. Yes. We want a child to be narcissistic, like everything is about them, and we want to make it all about them, especially in the first four to six months. Right. And and then we begin to want to allow uh, minimal frustrations that are tolerable in a moment in time and with a need. Because then they grow. They grow from that. It's the the tolerable frustrations that allow the the ego, the self, to, to grow and develop. But this little girl is sitting in the crib, and nobody has come. And she's in terrible pain because she's screaming and yelling and out of control. And by the way, I would say that it's both emotional and physical at this point because she's just screaming and in pain, right? Yeah. We know that uh, uh, mind and body are always the same, but in infancy, they're particularly the same. There's no capacity to distinguish. So as she's in agony mentally, she's in agony physically. And the relief from that comes from the lapse into unconsciousness, falling asleep. And so the child learns, when I'm in pain, I can call on darkness to stop the pain. It seems to me, by the way, that alcoholics do something similar. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, that they decide that no one's coming, even right. though they haven't really, they don't even try to ask for help right, when they're struggling. Right. So I'm going to go a little deeper. It almost sounds like we have a phrase for adults called learned helplessness, yes. which is when an adult is in an abusive relationship long mm-hmm. enough, they begin to think of themselves as unlovable and they deserve right. what they're getting. And right. in a way, you're kind of saying that about infants, that when they are not responded to, especially in the early stages, they start to almost make assumptions about the world. Yes. And they are that the world living is pain and mm-hmm. no one's going to make me feel better. I'm on my own. And when I'm in pain, I shut out the light. I need to go unconscious to feel yes, better. Yes. Wow. And so if you think about that as the root of what it is that makes someone finally blow their brains out or hang themselves, yes. it's to stop the pain. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this Sex, Love, and Addiction podcast. 
Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com. That's seekingintegrity.com. Or call us at 747-234-4325. A thought, because I'm right on this Go edge ahead. with you. We've talked about, you and I have talked about, we haven't talked about on this show, and we'll probably have another discussion separately, I hope, okay. about where addiction comes from. Yes. But what that seems to be related to is a little bit later on. Yes. Just a little bit later on, when the child has had enough social interaction, enough parental interaction to know what the comfort can bring, mm-hmm. but it's so inconsistent and so problematic that they turn on themselves and they say, there must be something wrong with me for needing things from these people. Yes. I better just not ask. I better be needless and wantless and take care of my problems on my own. What I'm getting to is if falling into darkness for a young baby is going to sleep, is falling into darkness for someone who might later become an addict more like dissociating, using the skills I have as a child, fantasy and dissociation, to disappear into a state that comforts me like sleep, but it isn't the same as someone picking me up and making me feel better. It's still a self no. Okay, we're, we're on the same page. Let me say what you just said in, in my own language. Good. All right. So I'm thinking there are two developmental phases that are crucial to understanding the dynamics of suicide. The first one, I've already given it to you. It's in the first four months of life and in utero when the baby falls into darkness to stop the pain. Now, from four to 24 months, we've got an attachment uh, scenario or set of scenarios beginning where the mother does this, the baby does that. And And can you explain just briefly, what do you, um, there is a goal to all of this play back and forth. I need you. I'm there for you. There's a purpose to the development of the child, this attachment interaction. What is the goal of that? Uh, all right. If it's uh, successful. All right. Um, a- Alan uh, Shore has given us the, the best phrase for that. It's uh, mutual affect regulation. Now, let me unpack that. The baby has affects, emotions. Some of them, Feelings. Yeah. Some of them were born with, some of them have developed. But at any rate, the baby's got feelings and the mother's got feelings. And so the baby's got to try to keep balanced with her feelings and the mother's got to keep balanced with her feelings. But these feelings don't match. Mm-hmm. So the baby's got to figure out how am I going to get what I need from her in a way, and mother is thinking how am I going to get fr- what I need from her? And so what we, mom might need is for this kid to stop cre- screaming and feel better. Who knows what? And what the kid needs is maybe just to be changed and comforted and picked up, or just examples, right? But mm-hmm. and a world of other needs, mm-hmm. you know, because we're all full of different needs. But the main thing here is the mother and the baby then begin to do a dance together. And in favorable outcomes, this dance develops into what, what Margaret Mahler has called a, a symbiosis, or we can call it an attachment, a secure attachment, where the baby is going to get her needs met, and the mother's going to get her needs met, and they're going to do a dance that regulates themselves. And, and is joyful other. and happy on some yes. level. And, and then, so between 4 and 24 months, in the bright moments of the day, we see the mother and the baby happily doing this, 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 and this that works more or less for both of them. Now, Mm -hmm. obviously, frustrations on both sides start, but then growth comes up there. But when you ask the ideal outcome is that when uh, two, and I'm saying mother, we're talking about anybody in the caregiver. The primary caregiver, yes. When that dance works and is mutually satisfactory, then 
the child believes that that's the dance I have to do on my life. So I would say, by the way, in a very colloquial way, mm -hmm. that the outcome of this experience is self-esteem, which is a sense that I have worth right. and that I will ask other people for help and they will support me. And if they don't, someone else will because I'm worthy of help. And I'm used to be feeling like when I reach out, someone will respond. This is the favorable outcome. Right. That's the favorable right. outcome. Now, let's go back to the mommy and me scenarios. Depending on what's going on between the two of them, the child may learn to have needs met in a certain sort of warped way. If I take care of mother mm -hmm. the way she needs to be taken care of, then she'll give me what I need. And so, to me, when I think about... And that might be an adaptive way of... There, it's an adaptation. Mm -hmm. And so, when I think of uh, all of the addictions, no matter what kind, shopping... Impulsive behaviors, dissociative behaviors. Any yes. of those things. I tend to feel like the origin of that is in this mother-child or, you know, caregiver-infant interaction in this early mutual need fulfillment thing, such that there's a certain style of getting one's needs met that the child learns. So when, when I've talked to Ken Adams about silently seduced and how mm -hmm. so many of the men that I work with have narcissistic mothers right. whose needs exceeded their children's. Exactly. What you're saying is that child had to adapt to, okay, I'm not just going to get held and picked up and loved because I exist, but I will if I make mom happy, if I cheer her up, if I am this way or that way. And in that way, the child kind of becomes externally focused first, right. Right. rather than thinking I'm the center of the universe and it all comes to me, which would be the healthy response. That's right. Now, what does that have to do with addiction? Okay. We're going to, we're with this is, and we're still going to go back to suicide. Oh, yeah. so. yeah, no, I'm fine. Uh, uh, they're interwoven here. What we hope for somewhere between 18 and uh, 24 or 30 months, we hope for the child to begin, a child and the mother to begin releasing these patterns that they've established. That is, they have this emotional pattern that forms their attachment. And uh, mothers call this the terrible twos. When the child suddenly says, I know what you want, and mm -hmm. I'm not going to do it for right. you. Right. I'm not so, sitting down. I'm not that, going that, to bed. I'm exactly. not. They're ex expressing a self. Right. Now, if the mother other is able to tolerate that and to say, my gosh, you're really angry with me. And, you know, then the two learn to negotiate. But I love you anyway. Yes. I'll pick you up anyway. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so if the mother is able to tolerate the child's opposition, the child's developing her own mind, then uh, around most things, the mother will set up a bargaining. Uh, let's try this. And, and so good mothers are constantly bargaining with their children, but they're hearing and responding to the new need. The I would new call need. it healthy negotiation. There it is. And it's negotiation. And so we really have the birth of the self here. And, and, and by the way, I want to say to everybody, and this is just sort of an understanding that I think therapists have that you might not, is that in many ways, I think Larry would agree with me that we believe that the way we learn about who we are, especially in those first three years, is not through any, uh, through a whole lot of our internal experiences. What tells us who we are is how the world responds to us. Absolutely. And so by the time we get the child into the third year, the child is, is developing the self based upon all of the reflections. That and that's early brain. This that's is nothing early, oh. that you would remember, no, nothing no. That, that you could reflect on, nothing mm -hmm. you could really work on in therapy. No, but you could still, but you live it out. Well, you yes, and, and living it out being you could become suicidal or addicted or right. escape from relationships into self-soothing right. without them. Um, so you're you're putting together the development of early child relationship to some of the later life tragedies that can occur for us, like what I consider to be signs of mental illness, which are addiction and suicidality. Right. Going back to our developmental model, 
in the sense that if the child learns this affect regulation, the child um, from mother... That I can calm myself down, that I can make myself feel better. By this set of mechanisms. By reaching out and being responded to. And I can get my mind-body soothing that I need. Being held, being loved, being kissed, whatever that is. Okay, but if that is warped by a depressed, narcissistic... Or just broken mom. Broken mom. Then the child is stuck with that particular way of searching for self-soothing and the individuation like from that Like caregiving way. for another person. The only way I can be loved is I'm rescuing and caring for someone else. In That's this particular way. Play out in adult life. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the self is still empty. Right. And the individuation from that scenario did not occur because mother didn't know how to negotiate. And yeah. I would say that just personally, mm-hmm. after one of the saddest moments in therapy for me and analysis, in fact, was realizing that that I'd been carrying around this bowl yeah. to every relationship in my life saying, will you be my mom? Will yeah, you be yeah, my yeah, mom? Yeah. Looking for those needs. And I found a few moms, but they were never particularly good relationships. Now, can you feel how addictive that was? But the incredible grief and pain and the hardest thing in therapy was realizing that I was never going to have those needs, but I was never going to be that child. That was my growth because I had to put all of it down and realize I was responsible for what was going to happen going forward. And you could say that is the heart of all addictions. I have Is to the think- unending need... For something that once was that way, I used to get a mind-body state of soothing from a certain set of behaviors. Whether it's dissociating or fantasy or whatever whatever it is. And so in adult life and the rest of life, one searches for that. And in fact, one manipulates for it. And so you find all kinds of people in the world and you try to make them do it the way you want, make them give you what you want. I would call this controllable intimacy which yeah. ultimately is an oxymoron because you can't control the intimacy. The desire so to it's control a false, it. Yeah. The desire false. to control it. All right, now, now we'll shift, shift back to suicide because the second level of suicide, not the infant thought lapsing into darkness, the second level is the same kind of addictive manipulation. Except in the suicide literature, I discovered a better word than manipulation because it's pejorative. Instrumental. What do I have to do to get what I need? So what you're saying is, and I'm thinking about suicidal fantasies now. Yeah. I've had clients say to me, I'll show them. I'll show them how much they really miss me and will appreciate me because I'm going to kill myself and then they'll know how important I was. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. But there's a thousand varieties of that. Of course. Of course. But you see how that's a developmentally higher level because it involves working with the other, manipulating the other. Which might have been learned pretty early. Well, starting four months. Right, you know, right. 40, but this 40. is now an adult mirror of that same kind of relationship. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so the second kind of suicide dates to the second period of life where there's a need to manipulate the other emotionally to get what I need emotionally. Which is the second toddlerhood, right. if you will. And so these suicides generally are not successful suicides because the goal isn't to kill yourself. It's to get attention it, to, or whatever the need it, is. Whatever the, yeah, it's to get... So were you saying it's not out of despair, but more manipulation? Yes. Or what was the word? Instrum, an instrument to get attention yes. kind of thing, or something. Something, whatever the need is, to get the need met. And so you see there... And a, you will hear suicidal people say, you know, I don't really think I meant to kill myself. Right, I right. just wanted X, Y, Z. Exactly. And it's not that they don't, they're not accidents. There are. Sure. So I want to just, let me just review. The distinguishing between the, the people who succeed in suicide, their uh, call to darkness comes from that deep, almost psychotic belief Early that the only despair. way I can stop the pain 
is to go unconscious, turn off the light. Mm -hmm. And then uh, slightly better developed, more in the attachment area. Someone is a little bit further along. And mm -hmm. so in the attachment uh, scenario with whoever their caregivers were, mm -hmm. they learned a certain way of making themselves happy, but they didn't learn how to give that up at age two and a half. So maybe they're cutting on themselves or they're doing things to get adult attention. Exactly. Can I ask you, um, so uh, in I, this conversation, okay. and by the way, you're a smart guy and I'm almost as smart as you, not as, but I almost... I'm hearing all this and I understand what you're saying. I understand at a very deep level because I also look at books now on, on adoption. Oh yeah. And there's some real studies about how children who are adopted and I, to, with all loving and due respect to parents who adopt and kids who are adopted, but the child who's adopted will struggle to thrive in ways that the child is not adopted never will because That's that true. attachment with a mother starts in the womb it and does. the child who comes out of the womb and is handed to someone who doesn't smell right and doesn't right. taste right and yeah. doesn't causes a trauma that really does on some level affect that person the rest yeah. of their life yeah. Yeah. i don't want to think that we're this fragile as babies i we don't are. want to <laughs> we are <laughs> but let me say what i know everyone here is listening which is we have to tie up our time together and we'll come back together okay. Because I do think that people like hearing and understanding sophisticated ideas. They may listen to this podcast five times until okay. they really get it, but they're going to get it. All right. So my question to you now is, if I were a listener, I'd say, well, that's all very nice, Dr. Hedges and Dr. Weiss, and how cool is that? And now you know where it comes from. But I have a 38-year-old daughter who wants to kill herself. Okay. And I don't think that there's any way we're going to go back and fix the, the ways that I might have felt her when she was one. That's right. So what difference does it really make that you know all this shit <laughs> when I've got a kid who's about to kill herself and I have to act on that? And, and really, do you think that we're going to fix something that happened at two? I don't think so. So what do you tell that mother? All right. We go back to the suicidologists of the world that have said the only way out is through a committed partnership between the therapist and a client over a period of time in which they live out together the primitive aspects of relatedness. Okay, now that's going to be really complicated for people to understand who yes. don't understand analysis, but I think right. what you're saying is I would use the words reparenting. Okay. I would say that they're having a different experience of someone they look up to and admire and see that's as a role model, and they're being responded to differently. Right. Maybe they're getting needs met for healthier ways of acting, and they learn cognitively, they learn intellectually, that might be a different way to go, yes. even though their deep emotional pull will always on some level be to go into the darkness. And yet in the second form of suicide, where the other is being manipulated, we're aware then of the nightmares of therapists. That you can grow past. Who are fi finally feeling manipulated. Mm -hmm. And so the manipulations come out to be reflected in the here and now environment. So finally, the treatment is in a here and now relational uh, setting with a therapist in yes. today, right? But but Dr. Hedges, there are people listening who will never see a therapist, uh, probably more than do. There are people listening who will never make a therapy group. They don't have the resources, the time, the money, and they, even though they may very well understand the concepts that we're talking about, I don't want to leave them feeling despairing. Like, okay, so you're saying to me, if I were just listening to the show, that I have deep early injuries because I'm suicidal, whether it's to manipulate or just because I want to disappear. Mm -hmm. And that I can't really do much about that because it happened to me when I was too young to remember and it right. my early brain and ain't going anywhere now. Right. And that somehow I have to develop relationships and consistency in my life in a way that will help me grow past that or at least see the options of growing past right. that. But I don't want to go to therapy and I don't have the money for therapy and I'm working three jobs and I have four kids. So how am I supposed to work on these highfalutin concepts when I'm just living in the world and trying to get by and I don't want to live? The answer is nobody knows. 
as I said earlier, we've been studying suicide now for some time and with a lot of scientific effort. And we don't know how to treat suicide and we don't know what it's about. So we can't predict it. But you've just told us we just spent 38 minutes overtime on a podcast talking about where it comes from. I'm saying all of the scientific empirical studies have demonstrated that we don't know how, that our attempts to stop suicide are a little better than chance. So wait a minute, you did say that a deep, meaningful, sort of transformational relationship with a therapist or professional who has a couple of years to reenact and rework through that is, but outside of that, we have no answers. Is that what you're saying? Thank you. I said exactly right. Well, I would answer, I would offer one. Okay. Ketamine now is, and there are medical treatments which are in essence, we think causing dissociation and causing new formation of brain tissue and redevelopment in the brain in ways that we don't fully understand. But we do understand that there are medications for people who are compulsively suicidal that will ease that to the point almost like we used to use ECT, electroshock therapy. Now there's chemicals that will sort of shock the brain and people seem to lose that desire to die. They still may feel awful, but they don't want to die. Well, I can expand on that a little bit further, but we're still in the experimental phase. Yes, we are. With ketamine, we also have EMDR and a whole set of other shorter term trauma based Mm -hmm. uh, ones. And the goal in all of these in one form or another is to promote dissociation. And ease the pain? Well, to disturb. Right the patterns that are there to 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 break it up to break it up it's like breaking up a, a muscle that's been too tight you have yeah. to open it up and push it and it's exactly. going to hurt and exactly uh-huh. so on the horizon with all of these uh new treatments let's call them dissociative uh treatments the ones mm-hmm. that promote breaking up trying marijuana trying lsd mm-hmm. trying these dissociative elements in treatment to try to keep ketamine yes mm-hmm. yes and the work so far on ketamine is good. Yes. And I don't know what your personal experience with ketamine is, but back in the day of the raves, I had plenty of ketamine, and I know exactly how dissociative it makes you. So I'm thinking that that ketamine may be the best current model for where the shorter-term work wants to go. Meaning that but we, we don't will, have evidence for it yet. Meaning that we hope that since yes. the only way we understand right now to reshape the brain is through meaningful, consistent relating, which is still got to happen for everyone regardless. But if someone is very active and committed to not wanting to live, that there are ways to interrupt that compulsivity and kind of allow them to be able to think about new options and new ways of seeing the world. That's what we're hoping. We don't yet know that. But we know that we're seeing decreased suicidality in people who are on ketamine treatment. That that we know. Okay. So that's very, yeah. We are seeing success in that. Sounds very helpful. So let me ask you, Dr. Hedges, you've written many books, written many books. You teach, you educate, you consult. How can people... get in touch with you or find you if they'd like to learn more about your work you have um, a website or the first place is um, my website it's uh, listeningperspectives.com listeningperspectives.com all one word and that's got the reviews of all 21 of my books it's got another oh, oh, i'm sorry you wrote 21 books yes isn't that an adaptation to childhood trauma it's got to be oh i think so oh okay <laughs> just checking nobody writes 21 books thank you <laughs> to reaching you how can they find you listeningperspectives.com. And, we'll, and uh, if they and you, they can drop you a note, they can ask you questions, they Email, can get books. all kinds of things, right. Uh, the Suicide Book is um, on Amazon, uh, and there's a free version of it on Kindle. Wow. The You're giving copies. your work away. I am, because I think that people need to know this. and Especially therapists. Right. 
And um, my books have been uh, aimed at therapists, so mm -hmm. someone has to be willing to kind of go along with some psychological sophistication. Psychobabble. Right, to be able to tolerate, you know. Well, we did that it. right in this podcast, exactly. and we did pretty right, good. Right, right, but you kept me clean. <laughs> well, we just keep running through the – what you're saying is not – I've always found this, and I'm going to stop with this. I've been teaching therapists and the general public for a very long time mm -hmm. as an educator. Right. I rarely say things to the general public – that are any different than I say to therapists. I might change a word or two, right. but I think people are very good at understanding their reality. And if they hear it from an authority and it makes sense to them, right. even if it's, they can't put all the pieces together, they yeah. get it. Yeah. So I think where we are with the cutting edge of looking at suicide and looking at the desire not to live or the desire to disappear into the addictions, you're listening to it folks. And uh, you're listening to where we are with it. And by the way, in addiction programs, what are we doing? We're teaching people to be in relationship, to ask for help, to be honest, to be hopeful that if they present themselves in an open way, that they will be healthfully responded to and their needs will be met. We're teaching them about their needs and about their feelings and what they mean and what to do with them. Much of the work we do in treatment is, is really on some level, I don't want to say reparenting, but it's almost educating the person about what it means to be a healthy adult and what was wrong with them. Yes. And why we can't fix it, we can help people to find their ways around it. Yes. And that's where we are today. I have one last thought. Absolutely. This no, I doubt it. You probably have two, this, but well, I'll I take one. It, the last thought. When I'm working with therapists, I find it very important to emphasize that our knee-jerk human response to serious suicidality is to pull back from it. To or avoid control it. it. Or control it. Mm -hmm. But we, we try to avoid it because it, it makes us feel helpless. Mm-hmm. And that that's exactly the wrong approach. So can you give an example, if I were to come to you and say, I don't feel like living and blah, 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 what, what would be an example of avoiding it? Okay, well. Uh, Changing the subject or just talking about, you may not have an answer for this. I, it's I, okay. Coming up, uh, treating you according to some technique that I learned in a textbook somewhere. Oh, I mean, so when someone's suicidal, my office, I'm supposed to do this, this, and this, and yeah. that's not what the most no, important no, thing is. Like, tell the me, connection between tell us. me where it hurts. Mm -hmm. Tell me how I can help you. That is moving into it rather than away from it. And that the movement in is always very important because it's only as the person in plain common English begins to say, well, this week it was this way. Well, next week it'll be another way. Mm -hmm. And so we listen and listen and listen until the whole network of ideas, feelings, images that have been developing since infancy have a chance to enter into dialogue which is the way you do addiction treatment. Mm -hmm. you, bring, you bring everything into the present and into what's going on now between you and me and with you and your wife and you and, and the your group. children and everyone. So you, you continue to expand, expand, expand all of the thoughts and images by moving emotionally close to the person rather than building defensive walls against it. Folks, this is Dr. Larry Hedges, someone I admire and respect, and I hope that this has been an interesting and engaging experience for you. I am never bored when I listen to Dr. Hedges, and I know that we'll come back and talk more about early child development and addiction in future shows. Thanks so much for listening. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. 
On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.